Hello, and welcome back to The Burn Bag. This is Christina, and today's episode centers around the recent developments in the Nagorno-Karabakh region and Azerbaijan's renewed aggression. Today, we have joining us Elisa Von yoden Forgi, Executive Director at the Lemkin Institute for Genocide Prevention. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Thank you so much, Christina. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here with you. Honors all ours. Um, before we get started, would you be so kind as to give us a little primer on your background and your experience? So my background is in academia, right? I was trained, I got my PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in history, particularly in modern German and modern African history. And I studied German colonialism and colonial law and how that expanded what states could do to human bodies and the impact of that on some of the long-term drivers um, of the Holocaust, right? Um, So I was looking at the colonial background to the Holocaust. Um, And very soon after I got my PhD, um, genocide studies was emerging at that time as a new field of inquiry, a relatively new, it was about 15 years old, 20 years old by then, Um, but it, it was maturing. Um, And I became very interested in comparative genocide. And so I kind of jumped ship. I'm still a historian, of course, but I began to write more um, on the topic of genocide, comparative genocide. My specialty there is gender and genocide, particularly gender-based crimes and genocide. Um, And then I became much more involved in prevention. And that's sort of where my heart took me. Um, so I, uh, I've, I've, I've taught at various universities, right? I was the Dr. Marsha Grossman Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University. Um, and just recently, I was the endowed chair of the Department of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Keene State College. But I'm currently now, as you mentioned, the executive director of an NGO called the Lemkin Institute for Genocide Prevention. And I am now full-time focusing on that prevention work. Fantastic. Again, prevention is such a large part of genocide studies because, you know, it's one of those fields where you want to study it so it doesn't happen again in the future. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so that leads us perfectly into, I guess, my first question. The conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia has been ongoing for several decades since the breakdown of the Soviet Union. Can you give our audience, you know, background on what drives this conflict? Yeah, well, the conflict, the basic contours of the conflict, or, you know, if we want to articulate the different sides of the conflict, are based in um, conflicting land claims. So Armenians um, have historically been a majority in the territory known as Nagorno-Karabakh, which Armenians call Artsakh. Um, And self-governed that territory for most of history. And that history dates back 3,000 to 4,000 years. It's very, very old history we're talking about. But there's been a consistent Armenian presence in that region. And this was sort of the eastern flank of the Armenian kingdoms, right, at various times and has a very distinct Artsakhsi civilization. So we're talking about a distinct identity group. Azerbaijan claims the land as its own, largely due to um, the fact that Stalin in the 1920s gave this territory to Azerbaijan. And so Azerbaijan has claimed it as a part of a legal part 
of its nation state, its post-Soviet nation state, right? Um, so, so this is a conflict over land claims, right? And the Azerbaijanis um, can argue that there has never been a successful secession, right? Legally recognized internationally um, that created a sovereign, recognized sovereign, Armenian sovereign, right, over Artsakh. So Artsakh, um, since the fall of the Soviet Union, has been self-governed by Armenians as a kind of, quote unquote, breakaway region. Right. So Azerbaijan could say, well, you know, this is a breakaway region and we want to reclaim this breakaway region as part an integral part of our nation state. On the other side, though, we have the Armenian claim, which is also true, which is that this area has been historically Armenian. Uh, it is majority Armenian and has been through throughout its history. It's never been minority my Armenian. Um, when it was given over to Azerbaijan, it was over 90% Armenian. And prior to that, it was a kind of last ditch decision, it seems, on Stalin's part to, um, oh, I don't know, to increase the Soviet Union's um, diplomatic ties to, to Turkey at the time, right? Um, but before 1923, when it became part of Azerbaijan, it was actually promised to Armenia and it was self-governed after World War One. Previous to that, it had been self-governed under the Persian Empire, the Russian Empire and other empires, right? This goes back so far in history that there were a lot of empires ruling there, but the Armenians seem to have consistently had self-governance. And then under the, because of Armenian opposition in the 1920s to being given to Azerbaijan, um, Armenia was never an integral part of Azerbaijan in the Soviet Union, of the Azerbaijani SSR in the Soviet Union. It was actually a what was called an autonomous oblast. So it was self-governed then. When the Soviet Union fell apart, Azerbaijan and the, the Artsakhsis declared independence. Azerbaijan launched a war. That war ended in a ceasefire, um, which sort of created the space for Armenians to self-govern again. And they self-governed as the Republic of Artsakh, which was a democratic republic, right? So its leaders were democratically elected and it had its own military, which was kind of a self-defense, right, measure um, to protect it from, from Azerbaijan. But as we know, most recently, um, Azerbaijan's, you know, invaded and took over the entire territory. And that brings me to something I've seen a lot of on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, Mainstream media news has published a lot of articles that have titles that seem a little misleading, um, especially in regards to how sudden or unexpected Azerbaijan's actions against Armenia recently were. You know, I have friends, coworkers who work in the region, notably, uh, actually, I'm not going to name him, <laughs> but who are frustrated with these articles and this headlining because he says him and other academics have for years been talking about imminent danger, imminent threat from Azerbaijan. Do you have anything to say on that? Yeah, well, I'm glad you raised that. The Lemkin Institute shares those frustrations. You know, not only has it been predicted that Azerbaijan will invade, right, since 
really since 1994. I mean, Azerbaijan did not have the military power. It lost, in a sense, that war, that first Nagorno-Karabakh war. It lost a lot of territory to Armenia and to Artsakh. Um, but, you know, uh, the Aliyev family, and particularly under the regime of the current president of Azerbaijan, Ilham Aliyev, right? Um, Azerbaijan has rearmed and it has consistently um, been building its military capacity. And it has not sought to hide one of the main reasons for that military buildup, which has been a victory, as they put it, over Artsakh, right? And over the Armenians. And so Aliyev has made quite plain his intents for Artsakh. Um, he has stated that he's going to take over the rest of Artsakh. He has been supported very clearly by Turkey, which is a very close ally of Azerbaijan and has been um, even formerly as the Ottoman Empire in the post-World War I period before the foundation of modern Turkey in 1923. And Erdogan himself has said, you know, that the goal is to finish the job of the 1915 genocide. So, um, you know, so the threat against Artsakh has been clear, right? For for Aliyev, it's a matter of national, he has said this in many speeches, it's a matter of national honor, of national dignity, and of total victory over the Armenians, who he calls rats, dogs, terrorists, wild beasts, fascists, um, jackals, right? So he, I'm, you know, Armenophobia, anti-Armenian hate speech is um, part of his lingua franca, right? So that's just part of Azerbaijan's lingua franca currently, unfortunately. Um, so he's made no, 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 you know, he sought to hide this in no way, right? Um, and and since the 2020 war, when Azerbaijan, in its most recent phase of attacks uh, against this territory in the 2020 war, the 44-day war in the fall of 2020, um, you know, he's made it clear that he wants to finish that job, right? That he won't rest until all of this territory, which he calls Karabakh, simply Karabakh, right? Um, which is supposed to be part of Western... Azerbaijan, um, he, you know, he said he's, you know, that his goal is to regain that. And he has really staked his political future in Azerbaijan on that. So it would have been very hard for him to step away from that. And in the past year, he's had the region under a blockade since December 12th, 2022. Um, a very strict blockade, only Russian peacekeepers and um, the ICRC, in a very limited fashion, were allowed in and out of the territory, and very few Armenians were allowed to leave. None were allowed in. Um, and then since June 15th of this year, he has held the region under a total blockade, which meant that no humanitarian supplies were allowed in at all, even through peacekeepers or the ICE, Russian peacekeepers or the ICRC. So he was pursuing a sort of policy of genocide by attrition, as many genocide prevention organizations have called it, including myself. I mean, our organization and myself. Um, and, you know, other sort of think tanks <laughs> and prevention organizations have been predicting this since 2020. And, 
you know, we've just been sort of increasing our predictions and our warnings and our concerns in the last year. And, you know, the Lemkin Institute put out a report on September 5th using the UN framework of analysis for, analysis for atrocity crimes, which is one of our best early warning mechanisms. Um, it's a 126 page report. And in that report, we were able, simply by reading, you know, open source um, information, we were able to predict that, um, that Azerbaijan would, you know, would invade uh, this fall sometime before October. So it shouldn't have been a surprise. And in some ways, maybe the international press was surprised because they have not devoted enough resources to following this. They have accepted too many Azerbaijani talking points as fact. They've not read against the grain of what you could consider a kind of international consensus that has been forged through um, ignorance on the one hand and then vested interests on the other and a lot of corruption, right? Aliyev's caviar diplomacy is very famous. Um, and so the press has been out to lunch. It hasn't done its job. Um, and so maybe for the press, it was surprising, but the press has stated that countries were surprised, like the EU was surprised and the United States was surprised. And I, I just think that's completely inaccurate. Just on the term of genocide, yeah. as a linguist, I'm always emphasizing the importance of language in reporting. And I think perhaps another way that the media has failed is in its distinction between the term ethnic cleansing and genocide. In your eyes, in your professional expertise, what do Azerbaijan's and Turkey's actions in the region qualify as? Genocide, right? I say genocide, yeah, and the Lemkin mm -hmm. Institute has called it genocide. Genocide Watch has called it genocide. You know, the International Association of Genocide Scholars, uh, the executive board there has warned of genocide. Um, and so, yes, we call it genocide. And there's a, you know, there's an unwillingness in the international press corps to use the term genocide because it's, because there's a lot of confusion about that term and when it should be used and when it shouldn't. And the fear is that if it's used in in a kind in a case that later, you know, somehow is proven not to be genocide or, you know, where where genocide was never threatened or, you know, and that that's unlikely. Usually when the term is used, there is some significant threat of genocide. But there I think there's some fear that it will look like it'll look partisan and political. It will be used in a it'll be seen as having been used in a political fashion, right? And it will erode somehow the objective nature of, um, of journalism. The problem is in not using it, journalists do the same thing, right? So, you know, we all know Elie Wiesel's, you know, quote, which I'll paraphrase because I don't know it verbatim, but that if you take, if you, if you stand silent in the face of genocide or mass atrocity, you're basically taking the side of the oppressor and of the perpetrator. Um, this is something Desmond Tutu pointed out as well, you know, and so in failing to, um, use that term, to reference the term, to give enough press to all of the experts in the world on genocide who were warning about this case. Um, I think the press did a disservice to the cause of objectivity 
and impartial reporting, um, and particularly did a disservice to the threatened community of Artsakhsi Armenians. And, you know, as we'll talk about later, I think in this podcast, may have done a disservice to the cause of peace and security in the world, because what has just recently happened um, has emboldened Turkey and Azerbaijan in a way they haven't been emboldened up to this point. And I think they feel they have complete and utter impunity. And so with this impunity, they may decide to, you know, continue with other regional strategic and economic goals that they have, which would be profoundly destabilizing to the entire international order. And so I think everyone's very worried about that right now. But I want to I want to say before we move on from the issue of terminology, right, um, is that, you know, ethnic cleansing, and I'm not sure a lot of people know this, right? And Genocide Watch has a really nice statement about this, so everyone could go to their page and take a look. But ethnic cleansing is, um, you know, we consider it, most genocide scholars consider it sort of a euphemism for genocide. It's when, you know, there appears to be a genocide, but that, but people don't want to use that term for whatever reason. They'll use ethnic cleansing, which seems more neutral. The problem with ethnic cleansing as a term is it doesn't really have a meaning you know, there are definitions out there, but it's not a um, it's not a legal term. So it's not a crime in international law, whereas other terms, crimes against humanity, war crimes and genocide are right. Um, and ethnic cleansing is, in fact, an English language translation of a Serbian term that Serbian perpetrators of genocide during the Bosnian war and genocide used to describe what they were doing. So, you know, I don't know of any other occasions in history when the world has adopted as a neutral term, you know, a perpetrator term that was used probably quite intentionally to divert attention from genocide. Um, so it's, you know, so I don't know why we're walking around using a term that Serb perpetrators of genocide in Bosnia used. There are terms within the larger construct of crimes against humanity that can be used to um, identify forced displacement, right? Um, and maybe those should be used if people think that a crime is falling short of genocide. But we should never simply, you know, use ethnic cleansing because genocide seems too complex a term to use, right? So that is just shabby, you know, lazy use of language. And for genocide, the reason I just want to quickly articulate the reasons that the word genocide has been and is being applied to the case in the South Caucasus, just to be clear why. One is, you know, genocide is a crime of intent. In the legal definition, it is Article 2 of the UN Genocide Convention of 1948. The definition is the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. So it's, an, it's a crime of intent. There can be no, in, no doubt about the intent of President Ilham Aliyev, who is the commander in chief of the Azerbaijani military, right? Um, to wipe Artsakh off the face of the earth. He has said as much in many public speeches, right? Um, for a long time now. And it's not simply his Armenophobia 
that drives this, but a very particular desire to get rid of this autonomous um, community that he considers to be existing within Azeri territory. Um, so he has made it clear that he has the intent. That's one. Two, the behavior of his, so then, you know, a leader can have intent, but he cannot take, he cannot act on that intent. Actually, the genocide convention doesn't say you have to act on it. So simply having the intent could theoretically be tried in a court of law, but he has also acted on that intent. So one of the major red flags in the 44-day war in 2020 that Azerbaijan launched against Artsakh um, which resulted in a ceasefire, but Azerbaijan gained a lot of territory. So it describes its, its, itself as being victorious in that war. Um, you know, a lot of the, the atrocity crimes that were committed by Azeri soldiers at that time were very reminiscent of atrocity crimes, not only in the 1915 to 23 genocide against Armenians, but also atrocity crimes that we've seen committed in other genocides, right? And so the beheading of of civilians and POWs, right? The humiliation of civilians and POWs, wrapping disarmed POWs in the Armenian flag, you know, and killing them, um, or in the Artsakhsi flag and killing them extrajudicially, right? Murdering them. Um, forcing captive Armenians to say Karabakh is Azerbaijan, right? Um, these sorts of humiliation rituals, right? And this very sort of symbolic use of violence like decapitation, which is very symbolic of, of depriving a people or a community of sovereignty, particularly when you're decapitating men, right? And 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 uh POWs, right? This is you know, this is just highly indicative of genocidal intent. And then there's the blockade, right? So by the time that Azerbaijan invaded, and this may have been one of the reasons, maybe a smaller reason, but certainly a benefit of Azerbaijan's choice to invade in September of this year, right? Um, is at the time that it invaded, Armenians were starting to die of starvation, right? Um, and, you know, if you see images of the uh, refugees from Artsakh, you can tell that they are profoundly malnourished, right? Um, that their bodies have been stressed, right, by the lack of food in particular and medicine, right, in their region. So we were going to have a kind of mass murder event happening in Artsakh as a consequence of a blockade that had, had extended past nine months. Um, when Azer and this was caused by Azerbaijan, right? So, but it was going to go over the threshold, right, into kind of mass murder um, by the time it invaded. And so it staved off that problem by in fact invading and terrorizing the civil the civilians to leave um, and taking hostage those government leaders and military leaders in Artsakh that it could lay its hands on, right? So, um, you know, so the reports that civilians were leaving um, willingly are ridiculous if you consider this larger context, right? I mean, the civilians were terrified because Azerbaijan had deliberately terrified them. Now, I think Azerbaijan is exploiting the fact that the world still sees 
the Holocaust as the model of genocide. So anything short of a clearly planned high-tech mass murder in a short period of time is not considered to be genocide. But even the UN Genocide Convention, the legal definition of genocide, goes well beyond the killing as a crime of genocide or an act of genocide, right? Um, and this is why, you know, genocides by attrition, genocides through starvation can be seen as genocide according to the legal definition because it accounts for that. Um, the framers of the Genocide Convention were aware that in history, genocide had been committed in many different ways. And the Lemkin, at the Lemkin Institute, we use a, we have a schematic called 10 patterns of genocide, right? Genocide Watch has the 10 stages. We have the 10 patterns together they work quite well because one's horizontal and the other is sort of vertical, right? Or longitudinal and latitudinal. Um, but our, in our 10 patterns of genocide, you know, gender neutral mass murder is but one. There are nine others, right? And what has happened in Artsakh since 2020 um, fits, you know, at least three, four or five of them. So, um, so we're looking at a pattern that's different from the Holocaust, but the Holocaust is not the only genocide. And it's also not the only, or it's in it, and, and also its pattern, right? in the aggregate, when you look back on it, its pattern, its overall pattern is not the most common pattern in history. The most common pattern in history is in fact, mass murder of men and older boys, right? And the sexual violence against and expulsion or enslavement of women and children and the very old. That's the most common pattern. And then there is this pattern that we're looking at now, um, which is a combination of genocide by attrition, right? And gross violations of human rights and complete cultural destruction. And Azerbaijan has already begun its cultural destruction in, in Artsakh, in the new territories that it has taken over. And we have evidence, scientific evidence, that in other places that Azer, other Armenian, historically Armenian lands that Azerbaijan has claimed, such as its exclave of Nachichevan, um, Armenian cultural heritage has been destroyed almost 100%, 98% of Armenian cultural heritage has been destroyed. And there's no reason to think that that won't happen in Artsakh as well. Everything you said is so reminiscent of so many other things when you talked about beheadings with someone who, as someone who, you know, saw and studied a lot of propaganda, not only of right-wing extremists, but, you know, violent Salafists. That's what you see Al-Qaeda doing. That's what you see ISIS doing. And then, obviously, with Azerbaijan now in control of the Nagorno-Karabakh region, um, Artsakh, I'm, I'm concerned about just going forward in the future, as you mentioned, the cultural heritage of Armenians being destroyed, not only physically, but, um, you know, educationally. Yeah, that's what we saw Japan doing in Korea during World War II. Oh, that's a great point. That's a wonderful point. And, you know, and Azerbaijan has a very well-oiled, extremely well-funded propaganda machine. And the Aliyev regime and the Aliyev family controls almost all institutions of state. Do you know, it is it is one of the most dictatorial um, authoritarian governments in the world. And one of the things it has done is to mainstream within all of its agencies, including 
education and the military, um, what we can call genocidal armenophobia. And this includes what you're talking about, a kind of rewriting of history. And so Azerbaijan has sponsored um, really unscientific his histories. Um, and there are scholars, you know, sponsored by Azerbaijan who are putting forth this material. They're publishing it in, um, you know, academic journals around the world, not just in the West, but in, in many different languages that suggest that Armenians, this is something called the um, Al <laughs> Caucasian Albanian theory, that what Armenians claim as their cultural heritage is in fact the cultural heritage of a group that has died out called the Caucasian Albanians. And the modern inheritors of the Caucasian Albanian civilization are the Azeris, not the Armenians. And the Armenians are actually recent invaders of this region, right? And we have evidence of an Armenian presence that dates back at least 4,000 years, right? But no, they're recent invaders um, who are, you know, manipulating history because, you know, and especially Western scholarship, because they have a global conspiracy and a global network that is doing so. So, you know, there are a lot of parts of this Armenophobia that resemble um, anti-Semitism, like classical anti-Semitism, the idea of this Jewish world conspiracy, right? When you hear Azerbaijani propagandists speak, it sounds very much like that. But then there are these also these parts that resemble other efforts at historical erasure, genocidal historical erasure, like mm -hmm. um, Imperial Japan's approach to Korea. Absolutely. Um, so I think that's a very interesting analogy there or, yeah, or comparison that you're making. It's really, really important. Just thinking about the Armenian genocide, which was not that long ago, and seeing this happen in the region again and again. Um, we, as people based in the United States of America, um, who boasts an international presence, who boasts itself as a world leader, um, I feel as though the United States could be doing so much more. Obviously, we've just averted a government shutdown for 45 days. <laughs> not not a long time at all. Um, but there's so much more that the U.S. could be doing. And so, in your opinion, what further measures could Blinken be taking, for example? Because I was... I was not impressed by <laughs> his his statements on the conflict last week. Yeah, no, no. And they were considered to be quite hurtful, I think, to many Armenians, you know, and then vexing to those of us who, you know, who have an expertise in genocide and its prevention um, and who know a little bit about Azerbaijan and the region. Um you know, unfortunately, so I've thought about this question, and unfortunately, I think a positive U.S. foreign policy in the region, and by positive, I mean one that is maximally helpful to threatened communities in the region, as well as to long-term peace and security globally, would require a major shift in current um, policies and agendas. And here's what I mean by that. 
Currently, what the U.S. is doing in the South Caucasus has ended up strengthening and supporting Azerbaijan and its close ally, Turkey, and strengthening and supporting their agendas against a host of ethnic and religious minority groups in the region, right? And by this, I mean Armenians, but also other Christian groups such as you know, Chaldeans and others with some his Assyrian, uh, many of them having a kind of Assyrian heritage, Kurds, Yazidis, and Alevis, among others, right? Um, and we have seen Turkey methodically in recent years and, um, you know, with great strength going after what it considers to be some of its uh, internal enemies that also have external bases, right? So particularly the Kurds. Armenia is a little bit further off, right? So you have Eastern Turkey, which is Kurdish territory, and and and, and historically, West, it's called Western Armenia, right? So Eastern Turkey is also historically Armenian territory. Um, and Armenia is a little bit further east. But Erdogan is pursuing, so this Artsakh situation is not just about Artsakh. So for anyone who thinks this is about 120,000 people, in you know this place I've never heard of before, Nagorno-Karabakh, in this tiny region, the South Caucasus that we never talk about, and they'll get over it. You know they can go to Armenia, they can live in Armenia. This is completely wrongheaded, do you know? Um, and unfortunately, I think some Western leaders were thinking that as well. They, this would be a painful transition but it's a necessary one for peace. And this is just completely wrong when you consider the agendas of regional powers, right? So Turkey has in its sights creating, you know, through diplomatic means, but also military means as necessary, a kind of Turkic belt um, that extends from Anatolia, right? So from modern Turkey through Armenia, into Azerbaijan, into the South Caucasus, and into parts of China and Russia. And it is very deliberately building this pan-Turkic belt. That ideology is the ideology behind the Armenian genocide. It has not changed. And those lands that it's seeking to rid of ethnic and religious minorities are the very lands that it was seeking to rid of those minorities in the um, in the First World War during the Armenian genocide with the exclusion of the Kurds. But the Kurds themselves will say, well, for Turkey, the Armenians were breakfast and were lunch, right? So we were lunch. Um, so the, 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 the conquest of Kurds, right, has been a much longer history extending through the 20th century to the present. Um, and, and, you know, in, in pursuit of this, we've already seen uh, Turkey commit genocide, what many call genocide in northern Syria against Kurdish populations. And it also supported ISIS. I mean, one just has to say that out loud. Um, and ISIS's, uh, you know, advancement into northern Iraq and its genocide against ethno-religious minorities there, mainly the Yazidis, but also the Shabak Shia, the Christian minorities, right, the Kukai, and all sorts of other diverse peoples that have populated this region for thousands of years, right? Um, so, you know, we have a genocidal intent behind everything that Turkey and Azerbaijan 
are doing. And the idea that you can allow them to commit soft genocide or mini genocide, right, um, is, 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 well, number one, that's immoral, right? That's an unethical idea. And if we're going to prevent genocide, we have to prevent genocide. That's just the, you know, the bottom line. In the world, we have to agree to prevent genocide. Maybe we won't stop war, but we have to agree to prevent genocide. It's illegal. It's considered the crime of crimes, and we can't be complicit in it. We can't be countenancing it, and we certainly can't be perpetrating it. So number one, it's immoral to countenance genocide and to suggest that that's a solution or some sort of peace-building process. Um, but number two, genocides are almost never self-limiting because genocidaires are ambitious, you know, and so Azerbaijan has greater ambitions and Turkey has greater ambitions. And one of the ways we see that is in this discourse on the Zangazur corridor, right, which maybe we'll talk about. Um, but that's one of the clear ways where even this limited military advance of Azerbaijan into Artsakh is not is probably not going to stop at the sovereign border border with Armenia. And so, you know, the U.S., <laughs> is the U.S. is in a difficult position, and I realize how that is. And this is because that Zangazur corridor would be a land corridor linking Europe to Central Asia, right? And so this is sort of a reassertion of the Silk Road. It's a very potentially um, enormous economic investment with enormous rewards for anyone who is involved in it. And it's like World War I. Everyone joined World War I because no one wanted to be left out because they realized that the spoils will be divvied up amongst the victorious parties. I think we have a similar situation going on here. And this explains, in part, Russia's pivot, right, to endorsing Azerbaijan and Turkey at the expense of Armenia, which it had for a long time um, protected in some ways, right? So Russia has pivoted because it sees that it will benefit enormously, right, from sovereign from, from a Turkic sovereignty in that region. Um, and it doesn't want to be left out of that. Certainly Turkey and Azerbaijan will benefit and the West is going to benefit immensely as well. Not only has Azerbaijan provided by some accounts, continued access to Russian oil through its own corridors, right? Um, but, you know, Central Asia is geopolitically important and very rich in key minerals that are necessary to the technological information age. So, um, so we have to look at this in big, right? And if Azerbaijan and Turkey invade Armenia, not only is Armenia threatened, right? But, you know, we may see other powers being drawn into a new war. This could be seen as a new front of the war in Ukraine, right? Or, uh, you know, an entirely new conflict zone. It's unlikely, for example, that Iran would put up with greater Turkish influence, right, in the region and with a loss of this kind of buffer state. Armenia is, in a sense, a buffer state, right? Um, so Iran might be drawn in, which means that Israel might be drawn in, and therefore we could see how, you know, the dominoes might fall after that. And so we're looking at a serious, we're looking at um, a serious threat from Turkish and Azerbaijanis genocidal ideology to world peace. 
And so those folks who have been warning about the war in Artsakh are not only concerned with the population of Artsakh, although as a distinct civilization, right, um, genocide prevention experts believe they have a right to exist, they have a right to self-determination. And not only that, the world needs them. We need our human diversity and our cultural diversity, right? So that's number one. But those warning of genocide in the region also know very well how these small conflicts and these small genocides, because they're because of the extreme nature of the ideologies behind them, tend to result in much larger, if not global, conflagrations that kill and harm, you know, many, many more people than initially envisaged. So I'm worried that the United States, in pursuing with the European Union these peace what were what they were calling peace negotiations over the last year, have been used, wittingly or unwittingly, I don't know, by Azerbaijan to advance its coercive agenda, its aggressive agenda in the region, right? Um, and therefore have emboldened Azerbaijan and Turkey to the point that it's now going to be very, very difficult to draw them back from plans they may have, and all indicators are that they have them, to invade Armenia. So, um, you know, so we've been calling out these peace negotiations for over a year as very problematic. Um, and as peace, you know, peace to end all peace, right? Peace negotiations that result in war. Um, and now, you know, I, I actually don't know what the U.S. can do. I think that the Western world needs to pivot very quickly to some very strong coercive diplomacy against Turkey and Azerbaijan. And hopefully it can gain some support from UN offices that are tasked with genocide prevention, right? Although they are very weak and they're they are kept weak, I yeah. think, and intentionally. These international organizations, the UN and NATO, for example, who were created with pretty much a single-minded goal, of preventing anything like the Holocaust from happening again, preventing anything like the Cold War or a resurgence of like the USSR. Turkey is a member of NATO. It's it's everything's become so convoluted. And I think these international organizations have almost acted as shackles for world leaders, global governments that could do more potentially without them. Oh, that's a very interesting that's a very interesting statement. Um yeah, the you know the response of the international community including the United Nations to this crisis in Artsakh for me spells an end to any pretense that we have of, you know, an organized international effort at genocide prevention, at atrocity prevention. So basically it doesn't exist. And whereas in the 1990s with Rwanda and Bosnia, after which, right, there was a concerted effort to create some kind of organized genocide prevention mechanism in the world. Um, whereas back then, arguments could be made that we really didn't have an infrastructure or a knowledge base necessary to prevent genocide. Although, you know, it, 
although those are hard to make, right? Given, I mean, given all we know about those conflicts, right? So a lot could have been done and it wasn't done. But, you know, there wasn't like, let's say if a government needs some strong academic work, right? Showing that this might work, that, that didn't really exist. Now it does, right? Now it does. And not only that, thousands of people in governments around the world and in the UN have gone through meticulous and high level excellent trainings in genocide prevention so they all know this is the pro this is the difference you know in this case um you know at, which is different from bosnia rwanda but also darfur right maybe even the rohingya genocide in this case everyone knows what they were looking at and they chose not to talk about it. And in that way, I do think we're a bit fettered in what we can say, because the UN has fallen into a language of neutrality, of false neutrality in both sidesism that is a straitjacket on any clear assessment of what is going on. So that what happens is the only people who really understand what's going on in the world are subject and regional experts, as well as leaders, right, who are in on all those meetings that none of us normal people can attend. But there's just no global consciousness or understanding of the world that we all live in. And so it has really hampered any grassroots efforts at genocide prevention or long-term peace building. Um, and we have to trust then you, the UN and, and our news right outlets, which are have shown themselves to be untrustworthy. So this is a terrible situation. It's a crisis moment. You know, uh, there are ways in which this moment is maybe unavoidable. What we see now is 19th century um, imperialism reasserting itself in 21st century garb. It's profoundly ugly. Right, we're moving away from the post-1945 rule-based multilateral order into a kind of winner-take-all, might-makes-right, survival of the fittest, great game. And there are a lot of new powers asserting themselves, China, right, India, um, Russia, the US, right, the EU, those are more traditional um, imperialists, at least judging from the last 500 years, right? Uh, Japan, I think, is not as powerful as it used to be, although it's asserting itself as well. And then you have Middle Eastern countries also, right, that are getting in on this game. And so that means that the world has become an extremely dangerous place. And it also means that we need new institutions and we need new languages. We need new mechanisms, new protocols, new research, right? Um, you know, new policies, new imperatives, new agendas to meet the demands. But it's, you know, I think one thing we can say for sure is that as nation states erode and as the power of enormous multilateral corporations increase and the as the number of you know powerful people uh condenses into smaller and smaller groups groupings um what we're going to see is is you know greater interest in committing genocide to solve problems i, I met with a colleague uh argentine international human rights lawyer irena massimino the Pope Francis in uh, 2017, and this was his greatest fear about genocide in the future, uh, is, is, is that genocide will become a kind of general policy 
possibility for states that are dealing with you know, problematic populations in territories that have either become uninhabitable due to climate change or that have become necessary, uh, you know, sources for food for one group as opposed to another group, or that have become just problematic because they are resisting centralized control or whatever else, right? There are abundance of reasons that we may see states wish to turn to genocide. And what the international response to Artsakh has suggested is that, you know, that will go unchallenged. And so my argument to the world is that whatever riches exist in Central Asia, right, um, for those governments, you know, Russia, the United States, the EU, Turkey and Azerbaijan that are interested in access, accessing them, um, nothing is worth genocide. Nothing is worth, genoc worth genocide on a moral, practical, strategic uh, level. Nothing is worth countenancing genocide. And if we reinvent a Silk Road through the use of genocide, we are contributing to global chaos in one of the most direct ways I can imagine. And once that genie is out of the bottle, once we act as if there's no UN genocide convention and Raphael Lemkin had never been born and the Holocaust had never happened and no one ever shouted never again, once we behave that way, I think it's going to be almost impossible, um, you know, to put that back in, uh, to, to somehow control that, right? <laughs> somehow, um, yes, compartmentalize that so it only works for U.S. interests or Russian interests or whoever's interests. It's going to become a very dangerous and ugly world. I don't want to take up any more of your time. We've been here. You've been at it for an hour, so I'm going to end it there. But I think that was a very poignant you know, topic to end on, just looking to the future and a general message to our leaders. Oh. But again, Thank you so much for your time. This was a great conversation. The insight, fantastic. Thank you. You're too kind, Christine. It was lovely to talk to you. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my thoughts. Thank you very much. Thank you.